You are listening to the Mercy View podcast. Mercy View exists to be a gospel-centered family of missional disciples to the glory of God and for the city's good. For more information about Mercy View, please visit our website at mercyview.com. Now, let's taste and see that the Lord is good. Tonight's reading comes from Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. Welcome to Mercy View. I feel like I've already said that, but that's okay. Corbett, I'm putting your music over here on the organ. My name's Ryan, one of the pastors here. Really grateful that you've joined us. Opportunity to celebrate new life. It's always exciting when um, we have a lot of little kids in this church, like a lot. And um, when they come to know the Lord and start displaying evidence of new life and faith, it's remarkable. It's one of the things where you can, you can see that God is at work in this unique kind of way that despite all of our efforts, we could try and try and try. We could never do what he does. We could never do what he does. And so these are examples of that. It's really, it's really a lot of fun to see. We are in week two of our sermon series on the Ten Commandments. Really excited for this series. We think that God is at work in a unique way through it. And so, welcome. Welcome as we continue on. Week two uh, stands to reason that we're on the second commandment. So we'll jump in. Uh, Saturday night, for the last year, year and a half in our house, has been game night. We decided we wanted to carve out time to do game night together as a family. And so, that's board games, that's card games, that's figuring out how to learn and, and, and play and, and lose graciously. It's been, it's been an adventure, to say the least. We've learned to play a bunch of games. We learned to play checkers. We are learning to play chess. Uh, the game of life or Monopoly or all kinds of games here and there. One game in particular, I think Katie's folks got it for us, um, is it's a national park themed game. It's called Trekking the National Parks. Now, we're into the national parks. About a year and a half ago, we went to Utah and hit a couple, and that was a lot of fun. And so trekking the national parks was a great segue for us to continue to learn and, and play games together. Little did I know that trekking the national parks is the most complicated game ever invented. Rules. In fact, they give you a booklet, not a page, a booklet of the instructions, and then also they include links to YouTube videos of people walking you through the rules. Not the game, the rules. And so if you fail on plan A, you can go to plan B and check out, check out YouTube. And if that doesn't work for you, I guess you're just in trouble. Once we figured out the instructions, 
watched the videos and, and got everything kind of together. It was a great game. Super fun game. We've learned to play that together. Benaya likes that game a lot. And it's been one where there's lots of opportunity for trying to like hold multiple ideas and all kinds of things together in your mind at the same time. But there was literally no way you would learn how to play this game correctly without the instructions. There was no way. There was, you were not going to play this game without the framework that the instructions give you for how to play the game. You need those instructions. You need that framework. We need a similar framework, a similar paradigm as we approach the Ten Commandments. I would suggest to you that you cannot rightly understand the Ten Commandments without this paradigm. You can't just look at them by themselves and think, okay, this is what God is telling me to do without understanding the larger story of God, the larger story of the Scripture, how God is working in the law and through grace together to understand the Ten Commandments. You need that framework. In other words, it's, they're not just examples of what God tells us to do. Like, yeah, they're commandments. I got it. But to understand them, you also have to understand why God is telling you to do what he's told you to do. So you need the what and you need the why. You need the what and you need the why. So with that in mind, I want to I do two things here tonight. I want to spend a little bit of time unpacking the what and the why together as a, as a contextual framework for tonight, but then also for the rest of our time in the Ten Commandments. Like we need the framework to understand like we needed the instructions to play the game. And then second, when we get to our text in Exodus 20, I want you to see one point, and that is that you were made to worship. You were made to worship. But before we do that, let me pray for us. <clears throat> Our Father, thank you, God, that you are a God of mercy and grace and love and kindness, that you come near your people, that you have always been coming near your people, drawing us closer to you, finding us on the road, walking with us, even when we struggle, even when we sin, even when we don't want anything to do with you, you find us, Lord, you pursue us. Thank you, God, that even in the Ten Commandments, in the law, we find you pursuing us seeking after us, directing us on the path to life. Be with us, God. Open our eyes, as the psalmist says in Psalm 119, that we would find wonders in your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So first, the what and the why. The what and the why. If you have your Bible, you can flip over to Psalm 1611. Psalm 1611. When you think about the law, when you think about God's law, you think about the Ten Commandments specifically, what comes to your mind? What comes to your mind? There's a handful of things, different ranges of, of responses that people might have. But I, I bet, I'm willing to bet, that something like Psalm 1611 does not come into your mind. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life, in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God, in his love, is presenting you a way of life, a way that leads to life, that has structure where there are boundaries, an orderliness where obedience to him, to his law is required, and that leads to true joy, true life, true freedom, true flourishing. 
Why is that? Why is that? Well, if you look back at Psalm 1611, you'll see that this way of life leads you to God. And in Him, you find the presence of joy. In Him, you find pleasures forevermore. That's the point. The point is that in the law, in the Ten Commandments, God has presented you a way to live, not just because, not because it's arbitrary, not because He's a taskmaster, but because this way leads to Him, which is where you actually find life and joy and flourishing. In fact, you can't live in fullness. You cannot live in fullness without God, without walking with Him on this path. C.S. Lewis illustrates this in his this idea in his book, The Great Divorce. If you haven't read The Great Divorce, you should read The Great Divorce. Anything that Lewis writes, you should read. In The Great Divorce, uh, there is a, it's a story of a, of, a, of a group of people who are traveling on a bus from hell up to heaven. It's obviously fiction. On the bus, when they get there, they realize that they're ghostly. They're thin. Like they're even see-through. They're, they're really, really fragile. And in his wonderful way of storytelling, Lewis even points out that as they're so fragile, that as they walk on the grass in heaven, it hurts their feet like you walk, walking on shards of glass. They're so fragile that the blades of grass in heaven hurt their feet because they're less than what they were designed, what they were created to be. What they were created to be. So the supposed life that the autonomous self promises, self-authority, self-motivation, the self-worship of our time leads to this ghostly existence where you're less than you're made to be, like in The Great Divorce. Biblically, we could easily find, like anywhere, sin leads to death. Always. It always leads to death, whether it's quickly or over time. There are no exceptions. Even Jesus' death was the result of sin. Not his, obviously, but yours. Yours. So if we can discern that sin leads to death from the Scripture, if you look at your life and you see with clarity through the power of the Spirit that like the ways that you've sinned and gone astray have train-wrecked your life or gotten close to it, if we can discern that sin leads to death... Do you think God knows that sin leads to death? And the answer is, of course he does. And this is one of the foundational reasons he gives us the Ten Commandments. Because in his love, not wanting you to perish, not wanting you to live a ghostly life less than what you were created for, he has positively charted a path for you, a way that leads to life, joy, flourishing, and freedom, real freedom. ...and enjoy God to be what you were created to be. Only possible through the freedom that God gives you through living on the path to life walking on the path to life. Okay, for the sake of time, what's maybe perhaps one biblical example to help us frame up our, 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 this point? Back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, our first parents, lived in paradise. Paradise. Perfect relationship with God, with one another, with the creation. 
And it must be pointed out that 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 perfect life, everything that was perfect about that, all of it, was living under the reign of God. In other words, there were boundaries. There were rules. The garden wasn't a free-for-all. Rather, it was a picture flourishing, the type of human flourishing that's possible when they lived within the framework that God gave them. Now, I don't need to tell you that we no longer live in paradise. You can figure that out. Because Adam and Eve sinned, because we followed suit, believed the lie, crossed outside of the boundaries that God has planned for us, our sin has broken everything. It's broken everything. There's, there, it, it, it's touched all of the world. So not just the world around you is broken. You are broken by sin. Sin goes deep. The same impulse that Adam and Eve had in the garden to think that they knew better than God about what would lead to life, joy, and flourishing exists in me, and it exists in you. The same impulse Now, we could spend literally months talking about, months talking about how our culture combined with sin tries to convince us that we know better about what leads to life and joy and flourishing than God. But thankfully and mercifully, we're not going to do that. Instead, we're going to focus on the remedy. What's the remedy? How do we fix it is the better question. And so we'll start by looking back at the garden. You'll notice, if you have your Bible open to Genesis 3, or if you know the story, God didn't leave Adam and Eve in their brokenness. He didn't leave them in their brokenness. You'll notice in the story that Moses, the author of Genesis, goes out of his way to say after the fall that God came back to the garden. He didn't have to, but he did. He didn't leave them in their brokenness. No, instead, moments after the fall, moments after the fall... He makes hearts making promises that would result in redemption, restoration, and renewal. And we don't have time to do the deep dive of Genesis 3. But what God is doing, what he's doing is is working through death, through sin, to bring about life. He's working through the sin of Adam and Eve. He works through your sin to bring about life. The second century church father Irenaeus called this idea recapitulation, that he compared Adam and Jesus, like Paul does in Romans 5, and what Jesus does is work to undo the, the wrong and the, the brokenness that Adam created. Jesus, as the second Adam, fixes what Adam broke. But then you see this in this grand scheme. You think about the whole meta narrative of the scripture. The garden, there was a type of perfection. But as we work through sin and death and the restoration and renewal that God accomplishes in Jesus, when we get on the other side of that, the new heaven and the new earth is going to be more perfect than the old, than in the garden. Why? How? Irenaeus suggests God works through death to bring about a more abundant life than we had before. And if you think about that in your own life and how God works through sin and suffering and pain, that's exactly how he works. It's exactly how he works. He works through sin, through suffering, through death to bring about new life. 
to help you to see things about yourself that you did not see before, to help you to know things about yourself that you did not see before, to make you, to help you look more like Jesus walking on the path of life. He works through sin and death to bring about new life, to bring about new life. Bring this idea for our context full circle here to get to the Ten Commandments in our text. Okay, so when you consider your sin and the ways that you, like our first parents, Adam and Eve, step over the line, cross the boundaries that God has created for them, what we have to see in the Ten Commandments is how God responds. How does he respond to Adam and Eve's sin? How does he respond to to your sin. And we have to say with, with, with uh, we have to say that God uh, punishes our sin, of course. That God is a God of justice. But if you look at the account in Genesis 3, what is absolutely remarkable, there are instances throughout it where God is already pointing to Christ. He's already pointing to restoration. He's already pointing to renewal. He's already doing that. He does that by the, by the promise in Genesis 3.15 that there would be a seed of the woman who would come and would crush the serpent's head. That's ultimately fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. He does it again when Adam, actually, after the fall, after they hear about that their punishment for sin is death, Adam, actually, this is the first time he names Eve, which means mother of life. Think about this. If you just heard from God that the punishment for your sin is you're going to die. And you've also heard that... And you turn and name Eve, your wife, mother of life. What is Adam doing? What's happening? He's... I'm going to explain. He is demonstrating faith in the promise of God in the midst of looking at the punishment that God has already said. Does that make sense? So like he hears, after the fall, here's the punishment you're going to receive for your sin. And we could go through those together, we don't have time. But he also hears that God is working this work of redemption, the the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. And then, after that, he names the woman Eve, the mother of life. What Adam is, what we're seeing, what I'm going to suggest to you, is that Adam is believing that promise of restoration And you see that evidenced in how he names Eve the mother of life, knowing that if they died right now, she's not going to be the mother of of anything. But if this promise is true, if the promise that one will come to crush the serpent's head, Eve is is going to bring about that one seed, Jesus. And it took a couple thousand years to do that, but eventually that happened. So even in the fall... Even in the fall, you have to think about that for a minute. It's okay. I got it. In the fall, moments after the fall, we start to see the evidence of the mercy of God, the the graciousness of God. So when you think about your sin, and when you cross over these lines and you, you, you sin and maybe habitual areas of sin for you, what you have to understand when we think about the Ten Commandments and in general, God, when you sin, moves toward you. He doesn't move away from you. He moves toward you with love, mercy, compassion. He is the father in Luke 15 waiting for his wayward son to come home. And when he sees him down the road, he runs to him. 
He runs to you. Like, when you sin. And it's this kind, it's the character of God, it's the love of God, the grace of God, the beauty of God that we see in the scripture that has the power to give us context to then understand why he commands us certain things. Make sense? We follow him? It's who God is helps us understand why he tells us what he tells us in the scripture. It's about his character. It's about who he is. Okay. This leads me to the the point that I want us to talk about in Exodus 20. So if you have your Bible, flip over to Exodus 20. I'm going to read a couple verses here. We'll pick it up in verse 4. He says this, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. The uh, amateur philosopher and professional singer-songwriter Bob Dylan said that everybody's got to serve somebody. Everybody's got to serve somebody. Now, Dylan is not talking about idolatry, but the point he's making is similar to the point that God makes in the text here and in the Scripture more broadly. You were made to worship. You were made to worship. You were made to serve something. It's wired into you. Now, it can be easy for us as modern folk to look at the Old Testament in particular and, and, and look at them carving images of, out of wood or stone or melting down the jewelry and making the calf, and that, that seemed really foreign to us. Sometimes, in a lot of ways, we buy the line, and I would suggest to you that it's false, this, this idea that, that culture is always progressing getting better in certain ways. The Bible teaches us that there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. So in other words, the same impulse that led the Israelites to melt down the gold and make the calf exists in you. It's the same. Now, it might not manifest itself in a golden calf or carving up a tree in your backyard, but it will manifest itself in something else yourself, itself rather, in how you engage with ideas or the broader culture in general. It will manifest itself in your your pursuit of your own comfort. It will manifest itself in trying to ride the line between the kingdom and the world, trying to harmonize ideas or, or, or concepts that are not compatible. You see, in the Bible, idolatry is a deep and pervasive problem. It's not just carving something out of wood or stone. It's a heart problem that goes all the way down. It still goes all the way down. And the good news is, the great news is, is that God in Christ has actually provided us with the remedy that goes as far as the curse is found and then deeper still in order to root it out. But apart from that, As 16th century reformer John Calvin has suggested to us, our hearts are constantly creating idols. Constantly creating idols. We were made to worship God, but because of sin, we've talked about, that broke everything. You can worship anything, like anything, and people do. Pastor and author Tim Keller has suggested a framework for us that is helpful for understanding this idea of idolatry. And we've talked about this framework a lot here over the years. 
Essentially, Keller suggests that there are surface idols, things that you can see in your behavior, the way you treat people, the way you spend your money, the way you make decisions. But those idols only skim the surface. He suggests that actually there's a deeper problem and that there's heart idols involved or source idols. These, Keller suggests, are things much more broad. They're more conceptual and they're, they're geared up with your motivations. Things like control or comfort or approval or, or security, power. These ideas that actually provide the motivation for the surface idols. But Keller's not suggesting that that's comprehensive. It's not comprehensive. Because your hearts are complicated. Our hearts are really, really complicated. They're mysterious. They're, they're scary in some ways. So, we've talked about that framework a bunch here at Mercy View. So what I want to do here for the rest of our time is take a step deeper. So come with me. What's, what's, what else is going on down there? Or what drives the heart idols? one of those factors that animates those idols, control, comfort, power, approval, in your heart, in our culture, I want to suggest to you, is the idol of self. Self. Perhaps now, more than ever, you can create a life for yourself that revolves around you. You can insulate yourself from things that make you uncomfortable, circumstances, situations, or people, you can choose to positively engage in the activities or hobbies or even career to a certain extent that best serves you. It's not necessarily a bad thing to do something that you, you know, to work um, a job that you like, obviously. But there's a threshold over which our motivations pass where I can live my life geared up to serve me. It seems to me that this idol of self, or perhaps better, self-worship, sits under much of the societal problems that we have. We're not going to talk about that. And the personal areas of struggle that we all have. So we'll take Keller's source idols as a grid. Control, approval, comfort, power. All of those are at best self-interested and more likely examples of self-worship. Self-worship. Why do you feel the need to control your spouse or the people around you? So you feel better. Now, there are other things happening. But at the bottom, I want to suggest to you that control is motivated by, by the self. I want to feel good about myself. Therefore, I am going to control you. How about approval? Why do you care what other people think about you? Why? Well, there's, again, lots of reasons. But at the bottom, it's because you feel better about yourself when you have approval from other people. It's self-interested. Thinking about comfort. Why would I curate for my life a, a hedged-off and nice little suburban picture of life where I don't have to struggle, I don't have to do anything hard, I insulate myself from, from the things that make me uncomfortable, even if those are kingdom-related things. Why do I do that? Because comfort feels good to me. I want to be comfortable. And then power. Why Power in general. Why are people obsessed with power? 
You think about events in the world happening right now, the war in Ukraine, political processes everywhere. Why are people obsessed with power? Again, there's a bunch of reasons for that. Tons of reasons. Many, many reasons. And I'm not saying this is exhaustive. But what I am saying is that having power over other people in our flesh makes us feel good. It's the idol of self. And just to be super, super clear, you can't worship yourself and Jesus. That is not a thing. It does not work. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, seek first the kingdom of God and then all of these things will be added unto you. He did not say, seek first your own interests and then slide me in when you're done. That is not what he said. No, no. So you live, friends, we live in a, in a, in a culture that is obsessed with self Self-gratification, self-authority, self-autonomy. We could go on and on and on. And so part of what it means to follow Jesus in this all-of-life experience that I mentioned over here is rejecting that. Rejecting self-autonomy, rejecting self-authority, rejecting self-worship, and instead turning to Jesus. Not because me or somebody like me told you so, or somebody in your, when you were a kid told you so, but because self-worship leads to death. It leads to destruction. It's like the author of Proverbs says, there is a way that seems right to a man that leads to death. And so God, in his love and in his mercy, thinking about where we started with our context for the Ten Commandments, knows that and has prescribed not just a negative example like don't do that, has prescribed a way to life. Psalm 1611. In your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Walking with the Lord on the path of life leads to life. But one of the necessary requirements for that, friends, what this commandment is pointing out for us, is you can't worship yourself. And you can't worship anything else other than God, other than Jesus. Sometimes I think we, when we think about the law and perhaps the Ten Commandments in general, we fail, to, we fail to understand that God has created you to walk with him on the path of life. Another way of thinking about that, God wants you to be happy, to be full, to be satisfied, to be flourishing with him. And the Bible teaches us that you can have all of those things with him. And in fact, you can't have any of those things without him. This is the distinction that it makes. And we've got to be up front. We're honest here. It's one of the best things about this place. The idols of the world and the idols of your heart are attractive. If they were gross to you, they wouldn't be a problem. But they're not. They're attractive. They call to you. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. They're liars. They offer and they under-deliver. They promise and they can't keep that promise. More than that, they'll kill you. We've got to have eyes to see that in Christ, he not, only, he not only says, hey, you shouldn't do those things. He offers us a better way, a more beautiful way, a more compelling way. I get in trouble. I use my hands. <laughs> it's a more beautiful song. It's a more beautiful experience to walk with the Lord than to, than to walk with idols. 
This is what he's doing. He wants you to be happy and satisfied and full and flourishing. That's why he gave you the commandments to help you walk with him on the path to life. So we answer the what and we answer the why. This context, the framework we're talking about, helps us understand verse 6. If you love your Bible, you can look there at verse 6. When we're told that God is a jealous God. Now, typically, you think about jealousy, you might think about something like pettiness in a, in a relationship. Um, that's not what's going on here, obviously. Um, rather, we have to understand that the Bible from the beginning until the end, like literally the end, teaches us, shares with us that God's people, us, you, your relationship with God is like a marriage. Now we see that in, in, in illusions, we see it in prophecy, in promises in the Old Testament. And then Paul, thankfully, just comes out and says it in Ephesians. That marriage is a picture of Jesus' relationship with his people. Just says it. And then we see it at the end in Revelation again, very, very clear. So you've gotta, we've got to understand that, that context in light of, excuse me, we need that context to understand God as a jealous God in this part of Exodus where he's talking about idolatry. In marriage, sharing between partners, spouses, is a non-starter. I mentioned this a little bit last week. It's a contradiction in terms. It's like fried ice. That's not a thing. Or a married bachelor. That's also not a thing. A squared circle. It's not a thing. So we have to understand that the Bible has said, the Bible has taught from the beginning covenantal relationship with God that, 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 that marriage ultimately work if you worship other gods, other idols, and in particular in our late modern context, yourself. It doesn't work. It can't so God has prescribed a way for it to work. I keep coming back to this idea that in the law, in the commandments, you see the heart of God for you. He knows the way to life and he has prescribed it to you. Conversely, idolatry in all of its examples uh, strips God of his glory and it strips you of joy and flourishing. God isn't petty. It's not a thing. He is caring for you. He cares for you by knowing that life apart from him leads to death, but life with him leads to life. And Because he loves you enough to come and find you when you're off the path of life and bring you close to him understand um, this biblical framework where we started, it's really important that we have that in tow, that we understand the framework in order that we might understand how the Ten Commandments fit in our lives. God, is, God has made known to you the path of life, fullness of joy, and at, your right, at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. So when you worship God and consequently reject idols, when you walk in the fullness of who you are, 
of who you are. It's not like God is ever asking you to do or be something that you're not. He doesn't do that. That would be something like being cruel. He never asks you to do anything or to be something that you're not. Instead, he changes you. This is what it means from going from death to life. This is not like, this is not like an incremental, like, I'm just getting better here today, and I'm going to get worse tomorrow, and I'm just kind of feeling my way through this existence. No. God takes dead sinners and makes them alive. And after we're alive, yes, we struggle. I struggle deeply. But there's a great difference between being alive and being dead. And what God does is make you alive. In order that you might glorify him, be full and flourishing by walking with him. John Piper, channeling Jonathan Edwards, says it this way, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. That's not just jargon. That's not just Christianese. That's No, it's the testimony of the Bible. It's pointing to the beauty of God, the reason we're all here anyway. The beauty of God, the more beautiful song that he sings, the more beautiful life that he has for you with him. That picture drives out sin and idols. 17th century pastor Thomas Chalmers, Puritan, says, says uh, you need an, the expulsive power of a new affection. That, that means we don't grow in the Christian life, we don't walk with the Lord, even following these commandments, while like dancing between or holding, holding my sin and holding life with God. That's not how it works. Chalmers suggests, no, the beauty of God drives out the faux beauty of idols in the world. So when we think about this commandment, the prohibition against idols, we have to understand more than simply God gave you the command. A lot of us, listen, I've said that a bunch, because a lot of us, when we think about the law, that's where our mind goes. I'm just going to do this because. Or I'm not going to do this because. I'm a why guy. I need to know why. And if the answer to the why question is uh, because, I'm not into that. That's not the answer. The answer is God has made known to you the path of life. And in his presence is fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Friends, as you walk with him and you begin to see him more clearly, love him more deeply, experience Perhaps you're feeling a conviction by the Holy Spirit because you've, you've syncretized in ways that we shouldn't do, or you've actually bowed down and served something other than God, and he's bringing that to your, to your attention. Listen, that's merciful of him. And so what do you do? What should you do? Well, like the younger son, the prodigal in Luke 15, you should turn to your father. You should go to him. Not fearing what he might say to you, because listen, he's already waiting for you. He's scanning the distance, waiting for you to come back to him, like the father in Luke 15. And listen, when he sees you and you're walking on the path of life, you'll find that he's running toward you or that he's been with you on the path the whole time. 
Because, friends, when we think about the law, we think about the prohibition against idols, we think about all of it, how it works together, it's an opportunity for us to see the character, the mercy, the love, the graciousness of God in that he has prescribed you the way to life. Let's pray together.